We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast that focuses on how Judaism influences our understanding of pop culture and how the pop culture that we watch and listen to and can't get enough of influences our appreciation and understanding of the text of our tradition. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. And today we have a special episode focused on the new Netflix series, Made. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Made is uh, a limited series that uh, just came out on Netflix. Um, It it is uh, inspired by Stephanie Land's uh, best-selling memoir, uh, Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and A Mother's Will to Survive. Um, And it uh, chronicles the journey of uh, Alex, a young uh, mother uh, who is um, escaping an abusive relationship uh, and uh, trying to navigate the uh, broken social safety net system uh, that we have in uh, this country, and in particular in, in Washington State, where the show is uh, focused, and it chronicles her struggles and her journey, um, her challenges and her triumphs. Um, we're really blessed today to have a special guest uh, who I'm so grateful to be with, haven't seen in such a long time. It's great to be with you, Erica Wax, who uh, was Uh, a former congregant and a friend from my time in Penn Valley, Pennsylvania, and now works as a writer, was a writer's assistant on this extraordinary show. Hi, Erica. Hi, it's so wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so So much for being here. Yeah, so great to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about um, your role on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I was the writer's assistant on MADE, which essentially means that I got to be in the proverbial room where it happened. Um, I got to be part of the show from the very first day when uh, it was really just all that existed was a pilot script and a lot of inspired writers who wanted to um, tell this story to the best of our ability. So I got to sit in in the room. Um, I would take notes on everything from character pitches to dialogue pitches to plotting out the show in its entirety. Um, But I was also, as I was, um, you know, telling you guys beforehand, I was so lucky in that our showrunner, Molly Smith Metzler, really believed in allowing everyone to have a voice in the room. So that went for all of the writers that extended to me and even to the writer's PA, who um, is wonderful and now a brilliant writer in her own right. Um, But the writer's PA is the person who, you know, brings lunches and coffee typically. Um, Everyone's voice was valid. Um, Everyone's voice mattered and everyone was able to contribute to the story. Uh, And then once we moved over to production, I stayed on virtually uh, thanks to the pandemic. And I worked primarily with the producers and the directors of each episode, ensuring that the research that we had put into the show uh, was really manifesting on screen. Everything from working with our amazing props department to ensure that 
the domestic violence board that you see in the DV shelter in episode two was accurate in terms of the information that would be on there, um, that Alex's budget would be, you know, I would go through and ensure that every line of her budget reflected what would actually happen based on her, the types of assistance that she was on and um, how she would be saving and spending every month. Um, and would also, you know, be in contact with Washington Social Services to ensure that the actors would be saying the lines correctly in, in their discussions of the social services, um, that WCCC was WCCC um, and that LIHEAP was LIHEAP and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, this show, and again, if, if you haven't seen it, I can't recommend it highly enough. I, 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 I know that Jesse feels the same way. Um, so to all our listeners, uh, we really encourage you to see it, but it's, it's unique. Uh, and I, I can't imagine it was an easy process to get this uh, made to get it onto Netflix. I mean, kudos to Netflix for, uh, uh, for uh, releasing um, such a, um, an intense, but I think questionably commercially viable um, uh, project like this. So um, can you talk a little bit about the process of, of, of how this ended up on air and uh, whether that was uh, uniquely challenging or whether just from you know um, our perspective, it may have been? Yeah, absolutely. It was kind of um, a wonderful confluence of events where um, Molly Smith Metzler, who's our incredible showrunner and creator and writer and my mentor and friend, I love her so dearly. Um, we we really feel like like you know writer soulmates when we first met. Um, she was reading the book and had read the book while she was writing on another John Wells show, Shameless, and it just shook her. It grabbed her. She couldn't sleep at night. You know, she's the mother of a young daughter and uh, she couldn't imagine going through what Stephanie Land went through. She knew that this was a story that she had to tell. She just couldn't, you know, put it down and couldn't stop thinking about it. Um, at the same time that John Wells and Margot Robbie had just um, acquired the rights to this book, uh, essentially. And so those are the two production companies that we worked with, John Wells Productions and Margot Robbie's Lucky Chap. Um, I came on after it already went to Netflix, but serious kudos to Netflix um, for, you know, seeing the inherent value in a story like this and and for understanding that even if it's not bingeable watching, that it's still necessary watching and that it is still watching that would compel you to the next episode, even if it wasn't necessarily the five seconds after where you see the next episode button. But I've still been surprised hearing from friends for, you know, I woke up this morning to a text from a friend of mine saying, I started it last night and I couldn't put it down. Um, I'm through the first four, you know, I, I had to see how she got off that ferry station floor, um, which I, I would not have anticipated, but I also totally see it now when I watch it. Um, you know, I want to click through the, to the next episode and I, I read these scripts and I've seen the story. I know she's okay. Um, in the beginning of episode two, uh, and, and Netflix was also really wonderful, you know, in giving us the creative freedom, it was Netflix and Warner Brothers, um, in giving us the creative freedom to, you know, having things like the tally of finances, you know, that we see from the first episode and these pops in Alex's point of view that we get, 
you know, when I was brought in to be interviewed, Molly said to me, Alex will be in every single frame of this show. This is entirely in her point of view. And that's something that's been there from the beginning. And that's a vision that Netflix and Warner Brothers has supported from the beginning. So we're really grateful to them for that and for believing in this vision. You know, I, I want to clarify because I think the show, when you said it, it was, even if it wasn't uh, bingeable, I think, right, I was one of those people who had to watch the next episode immediately because you want that happy ending and you want to, you want to see Alex pull her and, and Maddie out of this reality. Um, if anything, it wasn't bingeable because of how difficult some of it was to watch. And I, I acknowledge that that really speaks to my privilege and, and the world that I come from and grew up in that I wasn't, uh, thank God, exposed to the, the poverty and the addiction and the abuse that okay. was very prevalent in Alex's life and very prevalent in the world and reality that Stephanie Land uh, wrote about in her life and her memoir. Um, that being said, my hope was like, okay, where's the happy ending? Where's the happy ending? Where's the happy ending? Um, and, and spoiler alert, well, there was a bit of a happy ending at the, the end. Um, it's all relative, right? Right. <laughs> that that um, what really hit me was halfway through the show, um, when Alex went back to her abusive partner, um, that went, went, when they, you know, were intimate again, uh, and, uh, thinking, how could she do this? Uh, again, the privilege that I have allows me to say that, um, not thinking about right, the, the security that sometimes comes with that, even though other insecurities come with that as well. Uh, and, it's a reminder of what I think the show really tackles is the interconnectivity sometimes between poverty and abuse. I'm wondering how the show um, focused on, on that. I know Stephanie Land's memoir spoke a lot about poverty in, in this, this country, um, a lot about her role as a maid in some ways more than the show itself cho chose mm -hmm. to, to focus on. Um, and the balance between navigating the welfare system uh, and navigating what it means to be impoverished in this country and how abuse is sometimes uh, an impact of that or impacts that. Absolutely. That's such a fantastic question. And it was something that we thought a ton about in the room. Um, you know, I remember when we were thinking of exactly the moment where, where Alex does go back to her abuser, um, we were thinking about what a low point of our season could look like. And uh, Molly said that the low point would be Alex realizing I can't get out. I am back where I started. And it's exactly right. As you were saying, it is that interconnected and that imagery of her stuck exactly, in that hole that's getting deeper exactly. and deeper. Yes. And, and, you know, Molly illustrated that so beautifully at the end of episode eight, when Alex is stuck and she gets sucked into the couch and she just, she can't physically get out of where she was. Um, and we were, you know, we were really determined to make that a focal point of our season, that it's not just, we're not just talking about poverty, but also the ways that poverty and abuse, um, you know, cycle through um, and, and, and the cyclical nature and the interconnection between the two. You know, Alex doesn't go to a domestic violence shelter in the memoir, but we wanted to ensure that we portrayed that in the show. Um, in, the, in the memoir, Stephanie Land talks a lot about 
after leaving her abusive ex, she goes to another guy who is equally emotionally abusive in different ways. He has her work uh, for him on his farm. And we were really fascinated. And, you know, she also illustrates Stephanie Land in the memoir. She illustrates a passage about her father being abusive, not towards her, uh, but towards her stepmother. And so we really wanted to bring to the forefront those moments that kind of existed in the shadows of the memoir, just because we have the space we had and we had the story time that um, those moments that were kind of hidden between the lines were equally important to highlight uh, for us in the show. You know, you and, see and that I, with Andy McDowell's character playing out with her relationship. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, to the room's credit, they wanted in, in making Sean such a prominent character, because again, in the memoir, Stephanie Land's ex is not, you know, really mentioned at all. He he has very few appearances. We wanted to make Sean a well-rounded, nuanced character. Um, and we were really, really conscious of how we were portraying him because, you know, we have moments such as when um, we meet his mother in episode three and we learn that she spent half of his childhood addicted to Oxy and she, you know, she throws a blanket over him and says like a bird that never flew, just like his daddy, you know? So we get that there are, there are ways to explain, but not excuse the abuse. Right. Um, and we really wanted to dig deep into that character um, and show how, how that abuse manifests, you know, in intergenerally intergenerationally as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the intergenerational um, uh, nature of, you know, the cycles of abuse, addiction, poverty uh, that the show surfaces were, were really powerful and really underscored both by the incredible writing uh, and kudos to you and, and your colleagues on it, but also the incredible acting. I mean, I, I was just really taken by, uh, I, I can't remember the last time I saw an Andy McDowell performance like that, but it was just unbelievably good. Um, uh, Margaret Qualley, of course, uh, playing Alex was, incredible. Um, Nick Robinson as Sean. So he's this character that is in some way the antagonist of the, of the show and yet is played and I think written in a way that I, I don't know if I want to call him a sympathetic character, but maybe an empathetic character, right? You kind of, you get into um, uh, the, you get underneath his brokenness uh, in, in a way. And so it doesn't excuse the abuse, but it helps you understand it. And he does such a great job of, of playing that role um, and bringing you kind of inside uh, this world. Um, I, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I, 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 it reminds me, Jesse, of, um, you know, when the Torah says uh, that uh, uh, something that rabbinic tradition ends up kind of uh, trying to gloss over, right, that, um, uh, that, you know, the, the sins of parents are visited on their children. And one of the things that's meant to demonstrate God's compassion is that God maybe withholds punishment to the third or fourth generation, right? So the great-grandchildren get punished for the sins of the parents, but not the children or the grandchildren. But of course, what this show points out um, is that uh, home is where we come from, right? And, uh, and, and if that home is broken in some way, if there is poverty, if there's abuse, um, if, if any of those things are present in, in our homes, um, we're likely to be wrestling with those demons or even reenacting them uh, in the course of our lives. I mean, the, the Torah could be uh, 
presented not so much as a warning of punishment, but as a description of consequence, right? That, uh, that, that you know, what we do in our lives will on, in some level invariably be passed on to our children. Um, and that sometimes our children therefore don't really have a choice in, um, in the kind of uh, world that they're going to live in, the kind of life that they're going to inherit and, and, and what they do with it. It's, you know, and, and that goes into this issue of, of poverty that Alex is struggling with in, in the story, right? I remember Barack Obama once said, uh, and I think he was quoting somebody, uh, but I don't remember who, said, you know, people expect you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps in this country, but you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have any boots. Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, and sometimes it shapes us, right? Our experience from of a generation or two generations ago without us even really noticing. Um, what I thought was so profound was how Alex suppressed the memories of her hiding in the cabinet. Uh, and it was only um, halfway through the show when she realized that her own father was abusive, that that, that that was pretty pretty clear all along that her mother was in unhealthy relationship after unhealthy relationship after unhealthy relationship. And you thought, okay, her, mon- her mother is, is mentally ill and goes to Alaska to this commune, you know, because she's a little off. Um, and then she realizes they actually, she actually did that to do the exact same thing that she does with Maddie when, when, when they go to Montana. Right, that that she was saving her, uh, and the fact that she suppressed this experience partially led her to have the same experience herself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh, episode five, we we talked so much about you know the the family history that led them to that. Point. I remember there was a whole day in the room that we dedicated to like, you know, we had on the whiteboard what Hank said the story surrounding the abuse was and what Paula says the story surrounding the divorce was or the divorce and the divorce. Um, and that, you know, Hank's way of describing it is she had moods that I couldn't keep up with. She ran off. She's sketchy. She's MIA. Whereas, um, you know, Paula would probably see it at, and, and she says in, in one of the episodes, I had passion. All that man had was depression, you know, and how she successfully gaslights herself into repressing the abuse. And even at the end of episode five, when, when Alex and Paula reunite at the uh, RV and, and Paula says, why do you have to drudge all that sad stuff up? You know, why you must need a drink. I got married. I'm happy. Be happy for me. Um, and so we were, we wanted to, we knew that we wanted episode five. So Colin McKenna, who wrote, who wrote episode five, knew that he wanted it to be centered around, uh, the barefoot Billy house, which really did happen. Stephanie Land really did go clean that house. Uh, his real name is the barefoot bandit. Um, I'm now a barefoot bandit expert because, um, as I was saying, uh, before we started recording, I, I wrote the, um, newspaper articles that she finds in the, in the, uh, house. Um, so he really is a real person. You can check him out. Uh, very, very troubled. And I, I credit Colin completely for saying there's a story there that we need to uncover. And anyone who does this 
has clearly been hurt in some way that causes him to take these types of actions. Um, and so again, I really, I really credit Colin for finding the connection. You know, I remember the first time I read this, the, his first draft and he had the dream where Alex wakes up and she's the barefoot bandit and she's in the woods and she's searching, searching, searching. Um, which, you know, I think is just such a haunting metaphor and such a haunting representation of what it's like to be in the process of uncovering trauma that you didn't think that you had or that you successfully repressed. Um, I also remember this was right around the time when the chicks released um, Gaslighter, the song. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the writers um, sending it to like the entire writer group chat and being like, did they know that we were writing episode five right now? Um, <laughs> which is which is so funny, you know, and again, uh, funny, but not. Um, and, and I also, you know, remember when we would talk about the ways in which Alex came to terms with her own abuse, um, you know, it, it's, it's very clear in the pilot when she says to Jody at social services, I, I'm not abused, just scared. He didn't hit me. And as she goes through her own journey in DV, you know, hearing from Danielle that what he did was messed up before they they bite they bark she says you know in the second episode and as Alex comes to accept her own abuse as emotional abuse as legitimate domestic violence um then she comes to understand what she experienced as a child through a new lens and so we were really we you know I think episode five is a wonderful culmination of the first half of Alex's journey in accepting her own abuse, both um, at the hands of her ex-partner and her father. And, you know, again, to the room's credit, they knew as soon as she had that experience, as soon as she recovered those memories, she would be in therapy. And so, you know, that's why we start episode six with her in DV group, having, you know, going through a meditation practice, but, but being there to be like, oh my goodness, I just uncovered so much and I need to understand more. There's, uh, you know, there, there's a teaching in, in the book of Deuteronomy, in Parshat Re'eh, it says, um, there shall be no needy among you. And then four verses later, immediately after that, it says, but as long as there are those in need, you should not close your, your hand or your heart to them. Um, mm -hmm. And right, we often interpret that as the importance of social services, the, import, the importance of, of welfare services in this country, uh, of helping those who are, are, are less fortunate, um, right? I, I went with a rabbinic delegation several years ago to DC for uh, Mazon, had an advocacy day on the Hill, specifically meeting with elected officials about passing the farm bill because the farm bill is where SNAP benefits are, are included in legislation, the importance of, of food stamps and, and WIC and, and that sort of thing. Um, as important as social services are to those in need and those in poverty, what the show really highlighted was how broken the system is. Um, that with the best of intentions, partially the bureaucracy and partially uh, that it ends up being a system where often people stay in the system because they're, they're, they're stuck in the system. There was one scene that really stood out to me uh, when um, Alex was looking for uh, financial assistance from the social service agency in order to send her child to childcare so that she could work and was told, well, you actually have to work in order and show proof of work in order to get the assistance to send your kid to childcare so that you can work. And it's this broken system. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember um, researching like the WCCC, the the child care grants. Um, we joked, or I joked, I thought it was funny uh, that we we would call one of the episodes "How to Lose a Daycare Grant in Ten Days" because it was truly, you know, if just getting into the weeds of it and like how how is anyone supposed to navigate a system where you know if you make one dollar more you have to pay seventy dollars more you know it, it's how you're punished for saving you know that was that was one of the biggest things that we we came across and that's what keeps a lot of people in the system that you are punished for doing what you're supposed to do you know I also remember when she's uh, looking for an apartment and there are all of these specifications, um, you know, for the participating jurisdiction, the PJ and the landlord. And yeah, it, it, it truly, you know, boggled our minds, especially with the SNAP benefits and especially talking about SNAP benefits and WIC during the early days of COVID. You know, I remember seeing a lot of tweets when there were grocery shortages saying, hey, if you're not on benefits, don't take the food that is marked as benefits in the grocery store because you have the luxury of choice and so many others don't. Um, and I, I just remember being so struck, you know, as the nation was in a panic getting toilet paper and pasta, how much harder and how, how you know, how impossible that would be to navigate um, if you are limited by the social services that you're on. And again, it's it's with the best intentions, but it is often such a broken system. You know, I, what I love is Jody's, um, Jody, the social worker, her, her character description is, you know, a veteran social worker who's struggling to keep the compassion alive, but has seen the system fail too many times. And that totally just sums up. She, she obviously cares about Alex, but she's seen this not work again and again. Right, you could see you could see that in her. I'm I'm so grateful to, that you shared that description because you could see that compassion fatigue uh, all all over her. And you know, I, I think that the the system um, in its in principle is created with good intentions. But I would say that it looks to me, um, and again, you know, this is my privilege as somebody on the outside looking into it. You know, I can see the ways in which a a, a system that was designed. Uh, in principle, to create a more even playing field, to enable people to lift themselves out of poverty uh, and to stay out of poverty, like the Yovel, uh, right? The the, the Jubilee right, here, essentially right. in Torah. Yeah, has been has been systematically dismantled um, over the course of the past several decades. And you know, and today, you know, I, I hear you know the the news reports about you know the conversation in Washington about um, the um, the uh, hard and human infrastructure bills, um, and with the with the conversation exclusively fixated on you know what's the total price tag of it, without talking about. Um, uh, at all, you know, the people who this is going to serve or benefit, who's who have to navigate this complex and, and broken system. It's you know, it's it's as though you know, um, well, you know, it's three point five trillion, it's three trillion, it's like one and a half trillion, like it's all good, you know, um, and it's a political game uh, rather than. So what what strikes me and what I'm so grateful for the show about is that is that there have been sort of like generations of hard-hearted politics in this country um, that uh, don't see the people who need these services um, as 
uh, as as real life humans. It's like they're you know they're living out sort of an Anne Rand fantasy about it. That it that you know that, that you know really what people need is to get off the government teat uh, and uh, and and you know pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And it's a moral failing if we're helping people in this way. The other place I saw this in the past year was um, there was an episode of The Crown, the most recent season of The Crown. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> where where it's sort of contrasting Margaret Thatcher's um, philosophy with the real live uh, the 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 lived reality on the ground of navigating uh, Britain's broken social safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy who ends up um, uh, breaking in uh, breaking right into the Queen's yeah. bedroom uh, at night and talking about what his life is like, you know, to a person who's so insulated by it. And to me, when I was watching the show, like that was registered so viscerally by seeing uh, the the calculations of uh, Alex's bank account, you know, go down, getting into the red. What, you know, like that is something that I have very rarely in my life have ever been in a position of having to like think about my life in in through those sort of cold, hard numbers, figuring out like, can I afford $5 of gas today or $3 of gas today? But Alex has to navigate that and care for a child and escape abuse all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that episode of The Crown, by the way. I think we, I was watching that um, when we were doing, I think they were filming episode five, but yeah, um, it, it, it coincided in a really wonderful way. But yeah, I mean, the scene to me that just illustrates that um, and which which we were inspired by from the, from the memoir is, you know, there's no one who works harder than Alex does. You watch her, you know, go through all of the, you know, in episode three, when she's doing a move out clean and getting all the forms ready and, you know, trying to get everything in place so that she can get partial custody of, of Maddie back and blah, blah, blah. And then when we start episode four and she gets those snap benefits and she, all she wants to do is give her kid fresh berries and you see the guy behind her in line, you know, kind of scoff, like, you know, on the taxpayer's dollar, you're, you're welcome for the organic milk. And it's just, you know, everything leading up to that moment, everything leading up four episodes worth of her hard work and determination and the snap judgment that someone makes that she is, you know, on the government's teat and that she's just a welfare queen who's just taking um, and not not contributing. Um, You know, I, I remember very early on Becca Brunstetter, one of the writers in the room who I love and who is just such a fantastic human and writer, she thought very early on, she she's the one who wrote episode four, uh, that she wanted it to be a Thanksgiving episode specifically to highlight those, you know, those contrasts and how you even see one of the houses, it's very quick that um, Alex is cleaning in episode four. The woman has no idea that Alex is on um, benefits. And it's like, we take these cans to the homeless shelter every year. You know, the ones that are almost inspired for uh, expired for Thanksgiving, you know, we're good people having no idea what Alex is going through as she's like cleaning the couscous off of her range, you know? And it's just those moments that are, you almost have to laugh. And we, we hope that you do kind of laugh. And then you sit there and you think, why, why is that funny? And how terrible that, Alex is being faced with these conversations when they have no idea both that, you know, what she's been through to get to this moment and has no idea that because, you know, she doesn't look like someone who should be on benefits, whatever that means, and we can have a bigger discussion about that, that she would be on 
you know, food stamps. Um, I, I thought those moments were really, you know, I remember breaking them in the room and, and they were equally compelling in ideas they are in execution, I think. One underlying theme I, I think that Alex expresses, especially in that moment at the supermarket paying with food stamps that you talk about, is the relationship between poverty and shame yeah. um, that she really speaks to uh, embarrassment of this being the reality as a parent that um, was provided for her and that she is now providing for her, her daughter so much so that in that Thanksgiving episode, which is meant to be humorsome, uh, it's to an extent uh, uh, where she's on Tinder and, <laughs> and she, right. She invites this college student and it's also meant to, I, I think, focus on how as a writer, the, the character as a writer is, um, creating this other world, this imaginary world. And that's how she deals with the challenges of the real world she's living in. Um, but I also think, right, she's embarrassed, right? When she hears about uh, this, this guy who his family owns an apartment in New York that he lives in while he's in school, that sort of thing, that she can't tell him that she's right, a, a single mom who's a maid who's living in transitional housing or, or that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So she lies um, and the truth is, right, her, her uh, lies became realized when she told the truth and didn't hear from this p- potential, you know, one night stand or uh, love address or whatever ever again. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I also love about that sequence with Wayne is that she, you know, lies in the fantasy of, oh, I'm studying creative writing and, and et cetera. But she also, he gives her the opportunity to, in that fantasy, tell the truth and be honest about her mother and her father in a way that she hasn't been able to talk to anyone up until this moment. Um, And then what's also, you know, just so wonderful about that sequence is that she's talking about Regina as if it's a story that she's writing and says that, you know, people with money don't have conflict. Um, which to which Wayne responds, you know, I have a Peloton and I'm miserable, um, which I just love. And, you know, that was in it from the first draft. And, you know, again, kudos to Becca. But then immediately following that is- As a sidebar, I I have a theory that everybody who has a Peloton is miserable, but- It's actually just so miserable. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I only have an elliptical, so I'm good. Exactly. Yeah. We're just like peddling like the oppressions of late stage (laughs) capitalism away. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, But- yeah, but what what immediately follows that is Regina's monologue, where she says there is a lot of conflict in in my life. You know, we had always Molly had come into the room wanting to see that moment of Regina shell of a woman. That's what we always refer to it as in shorthand. And um, you know what 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 I love about episode four is how Alex is able to, you know, understand her, you know, uh, how she's able to escape into that fantasy for a little bit um, via the shame, but also how she is, how she realizes by the end that, you know, what she says, what she says at the end of her writing, that our house will be a home because we love each other in it, that like, there is no shame in, in loving her daughter as she does. And there's no shame in pursuing, you know, whatever she can do in order to 
make her daughters, you know, the make up, make a home where they have room for a big dumb dog, you know, um, that those moments are just so, so just so resonate. Um, also as a note to the supermarket scene, there was a, there was an earlier draft where we were surprised and like horrified to learn that you can't buy toilet paper. Again, this was around COVID with snap benefits. And we had a line that got cut for, you know, either production or length or whatever reason, but um, she goes to buy toilet paper. And again, she has an imagined pop of the the woman at the register saying, you can't buy toilet paper with your poor money, ma'am. You know, you and it was just so cutting and so to the bone um, uh, that, first of all, I can't believe you can't, you know, I was so shocked that you can't buy toilet paper on SNAP benefits. Um, but, you know, it was just another moment of that, of that shame that I can't afford toilet paper and other people are watching me not be able to afford toilet paper. Right. Oh, you get some of that where the, where the um, cashier, you know, leans in the microphone, or at least you, you see yeah. uh, Alex imagining her leaning to the microphone saying, clean up an aisle poor. And, uh, but it does underscore this idea that, um, that, that, in this country so often poverty is treated like a, a, a moral condition. Um, and so it produces- You did uh, something wrong. Right, you, did, right you must have done something wrong to be in that position. Uh, and, you know, it's it's so far from the case. I mean, I think that's, uh, and, and uh, you know, similarly, right? I think that we sometimes uh, see abuse and especially victims of abuse see themselves as being, um, you know, the the ones who have uh, who have something to be ashamed of, you know, for uh, for for being victims of abuse or survivors of abuse, um, you know, that like like you know what what did you do to deserve that, right? Or like why did you choose that relationship in the first place, or whatever it is? Why did you stay? Um, and so it's therefore viewed, you know, as a as a moral failing on the part of the survivor um, uh, uh, rather than the other way around. So and Hank at the end of the show, you know, is able to see that for um, addiction, right? He's able to see like like. Yeah. Sean's addiction isn't a moral failing, right? It's a, it's a disease that he has and it turns him into a monster. And he's not wrong about that. Um, but he's, you know, in all of the Christian compassion that he has as this, you know, uh, born again Christian, um, he's not able to see to, to um, see it uh, for Alex as a, as a victim of abuse too, which, which was so, you know, I kept on wanting Alex to say like to, to her born again Christian estranged father, like what would Jesus do? And it struck me that actually, I don't know, maybe uh, he would say, you know, Jesus would say, turn the other cheek. Um, uh, so uh, the, the idea of, uh, of, of the way we're sort of conditioned to see poverty and abuse as these moral conditions strikes me as so antithetical to the Jewish approach to those um, uh, phenomena, right? Uh, the Torah uses phrases like, Ki like if if, if your brother who is with you like happens to become poor, right? Don't harden your heart to him, but, but reach out your hand to support him. So this is idea that like poverty is just something that happens to people. It's not because you have necessarily done anything wrong anymore that there's anything necessarily that you've done extremely right by becoming rich. Sometimes it's just like the luck of life's draw. I'm wondering, Erica, in, um, if you could reflect for a moment, um, I, I know that uh, your uh, Judaism has been such an important part of your life. Um, I'm wondering like what of your Jewish self you feel like you brought to your work on this show um, and, and what Jewishly do you, do you see like uh, having root in the show? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's so, I, I don't want to say it's funny, but the first awareness that I ever had of domestic abuse, emotional abuse, domestic violence was at Harzayan Temple. I don't know if you remember this, but um, which is the, the synagogue that I grew up going to in Penn Valley, uh, where in the women's restrooms, you would close the stall door and it would say, if you need help, here are the numbers that you reach out to. That was the first time I ever had any, you know, because of my privilege, awareness of, of those resources that were available and that this was something um, that had to be addressed and that, you know, it was kind of this like whisper network of in the women's bathroom, you see these signs. Right, as, um, as, just a, as a sidebar to that, too often the Jewish community, uh, domestic abuse, drug abuse, poverty are, you know, are sort of whispered, um, uh, but are, are not acknowledged as problems that are just as prevalent within the Jewish community as they are in any other community. Which, by the way, I would say we saw somewhat with Sean in, in the show, right? His friends were like, this is a good guy. You're overreacting. What is this emotional abuse that you speak of? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You don't leave a good man when he's trying. That's what that's what Paula says. Um, so so I would say, you know, that that really uh, when I when I think about, you know, my first day on the show was was touring a domestic violence shelter in Los Angeles. I I. I thought of my days at Harzion and I thought of, you know, growing up with this awareness and growing up, um, you know, a, a attempting to understand how to, how to help more than just, you know, have a, see a sign on a door. Um, so, so that definitely shaped my, you know, my initial understanding when I was coming into the show and understanding that it was going to be about domestic violence and abuse. Um, I mean, in terms of in terms of my my Jewish values now, I go to Ikar, which is um, a spiritual community in Los Angeles, and it's very rooted in an understanding of Torah as you know, as social justice and and um, acts of social justice being the way that you can like give of yourself, like the best way that you can give of yourself, and the way that. Um, you can like demonstrate, forge, and strengthen a connection with God, um, with Hashem. You know that that um, it's it's through acts of social justice, and it's through um, you know um, seeing be, being able to give of yourself in this way. And so, you know, every time that I would stay up an extra hour to do research, or I would make a phone call to, you know, our, our contacts at the Genesee Center, which was the domestic violence shelter to ask a question. Um, you know, we even did like a broad drive in the writer's room and with John Wells Productions for that uh, domestic violence shelter as a thank you for their generosity and time. You know, that to me is, is um, you know, the way I, I felt most Jewish, <laughs> uh, you know, when I was, when I was, ensuring that this story would be told with as much nuance and empathy as it deserved because it had the potential to help so many people who felt you know seen on screen for the first time and who hadn't felt seen on screen at all especially you know we all know like the stereotypical depictions of poverty in Hollywood and and for people even who have been emotionally abused um, but who haven't been in poverty have reached out to me saying you know I've I've never seen abuse defined and depicted like that on screen so so that um it, you know and I I would also say our rabbi gave a sermon um, 
on Kol Nidre about like the angels among us and like how an angel can just be someone showing up as their fullest self to help someone else at their moment of need. Um, and, you know, while I am certainly no angel, you know, just again, like, because a lot of my work was doing um, the research to support the writers and ensuring that they could tell as accurate a story as possible. I feel, you know, really proud that I was able to, to um, give of my, my time and my, my uh, research in that way. That's awesome. This is, uh, this is Rabbi Sharon Browse, by the way, the rabbi of ECAR, yes. <laughs> and you can find that uh, sermon on, uh, on ECAR's podcast on the ECAR website, um, and I really recommend it. Uh, rabbi Browse is my rabbi, too, so I'm, I'm uh, grateful to be able to share that Torah with you. Yeah. Um, Erica, I have one last question for you. Absolutely. Um, uh, Mishnah says, uh, when, I talk, when we talk about wealth, right? who is rich, one who's happy with what they have? Um, mm. And you see a little bit of that in the world um, uh, that, um, that that Maddie is just as happy with the dollar store mermaid or the dollar store uh, Ariel that the, which Shmariel. Shmariel, right yeah. that the dollar store version uh, and, and doesn't need anything big or fancy. And yet um, when she's cleaning Regina's house uh, and when she's away for Thanksgiving weekend, she's drinking her wine and wearing her cashmere sweater and, and taking a bubble bath in, in, in her bathtub and, and that sort of thing and desires that. Um, the initial Vox article that Stephanie Land's memoir eventually what was based off of uh, or, or that, that she wrote before the memoir was, I spent two years cleaning houses. What I saw makes me never want to be rich. And, mm. and I, I found that really fascinating. I'm wondering if you could sort of speak to a little bit about Alex's both, you know, that the unhappiness she saw with Regina and her uh, partner, who she was estranged from, uh, you know, by by the end that they were separated, and then uh, the happiness that Alex felt, even though she was in poverty, and even though you know, e even the imagery of seeing her bank account uh, yeah. on screen, you know, take away uh, dollar by dollar by dollar with everything that she bought was trying to find happiness and find happiness for her, her daughter, who thank God in most cases was unaware of the challenges they were facing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there, there was a moment in the memoir uh, that we loved and um, we talked with Stephanie Land about when she came to visit the writer's room, she came right before COVID at the end of February, um, where in the memoir, Stephanie Land gets uh, a check from the accident um, reimbursing her and she learns it wasn't her fault for parking on the Meridian and getting hit. And, you know, she, she's ecstatic and she gets what she needs. And then she also buys herself a diamond ring. Um, I forget if it's a real diamond or a fake diamond. Um, in any event, she buys herself a ring and she still wears it to this day. And it's the ring reminds her that one, she deserves nice things. And two, that she was not going to rely on anyone but herself for to survive and for her happiness. And we loved the ring moment. We loved the diamond ring moment, especially one of the writers, um, Michelle Denise Jackson, who's just like a total superstar. Um, she wrote the episode six, the housing and party episode, the apartment episode. Um, she, she really loved that moment because 
so often, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, um, that it's a moral condition being poor and being in poverty. People say, you don't deserve nice things. You just deserve, you know, what you, what you need to survive. And for that to be the case, why, why shouldn't Stephanie land or why doesn't Alex deserve, you know, the cashmere sweater or the, the wine or the bubble bath, just because she was, you know, born in a situation and, and was leaving an abusive situation, whereas Regina was not. Um, so we really loved the nuance of that. And, and Stephanie Land again shared with us, you know, that, you know, why, why don't I deserve the cashmere sweater and the, and the diamond ring? Um, but at the same time, you know, at, at that monologue that she has at the end of uh, episode four, after she hears Regina's story is is the idea that you know she wants to be able to provide for her daughter but she doesn't want to lose the love and the you know importance of family at the expense of those um, material things that could make her life so much easier um and i think that's a balance that you know um she, she demonstrates in that monologue where she says, you know, maybe the, the hallways are just places where you get lost. I, for, I forget exactly. I'm paraphrasing, but you know, um, you, you lose each other in houses that big. Um, and so I think it's a, it's a, she has, you know, the hope of being able to provide without worrying with the ticking down. Um, but she also doesn't want to lose the resilience and grit and determination and values that she brings to her work as a maid, even when she no longer is working as a maid. Um, so uh, as we wrap up, um, I, I want to ask you, you know, in the spirit of uh, Hillel in the Talmud, um, if you could sum up, you know, like on one foot, what you learned from the experience of working on the show and making the show. I, I love that before you use the word um, haunting to describe some of the scenes uh, uh, in in the show because that's that's in a lot of ways how I felt. I'm, I, I'm I, I, uh, the imagery and the um, insights and the dialogue and performances. Um, you know, each episode and all the episodes collectively have stayed with me um, long after I watched them, and and I hope that they never leave. So I'm I'm wondering for you, you know, what what's stayed with you? What have you? Uh, what did you learn from the experience of writing, of watching the show uh, as a finished product? And then uh, finally, um, uh, because study in our tradition is supposed to lead to action, what are some of the actions that you? recommend or suggest um, that we consider after having watched the show? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what a generous final few questions. Um, I would say the biggest thing I learned is, and it sounds cliche, but you never know what someone is going through and you cannot judge where you meet them, you know, um, and, and, you know, the biggest example of that is the for me is the scene where she brings Maddie in, she's sick and the doctor says, you know, where are you living? Um, I can't afford anywhere better. And the doctor just says, you need to do better. You know, she needs you to do better. And like, you know, you're just watching Alex jump through a million hoops to get to that moment. You never, you know, I'm sure the doctor wasn't trying to be rude. Um, maybe she was, maybe she had had a hard day, but just that interaction sums up what I learned from the show that you don't know what you're asking of someone when you say do better. Um, 
you know, and of course I grew as a, a writer and a thinker and a colleague and a collaborator and all of the like industry ways where this was, you know, the first show that I was on from room to production and what a dream that was to get to see ideas that were discussed be fully realized on screen. Um, as for um, action to take, one of my best friends in Los Angeles, so this is for LA listeners, um, is part of this organization, fantastic organization called Street Watch. Um, and so I've done distro with her where um, you go around to those who are unhoused, especially in Los Angeles. There's, um, you know, a huge unhoused population that's being right. increasingly worse via the sweeps that are, you know, being ordered. You know, we attended a vigil one night for those in Echo Park and the LAPD just deployed the entirety of their force on us. Um, but Street Watch is fantastic. It's um, community run. There's no judgment you just um for like the distro that I was lucky enough to be part of with um my friend Rebecca Sachs um and I say her full name because she's a fantastic author and Jewish activist in her own right um she um brought me around and you know there was no judgment in terms of asking folks you know do you need water do you need food but also do you need Narcan and there's no judgment it's just here it is, here's a resource that you need because it's not being provided for you um, otherwise. And there would be shame and stigma surrounding you asking for that help and just understanding that your job is not to do anything. You're not inserting yourself into their lives. Um, you are building a connection so that um, you are able to give them the help that they need in that moment, recognizing that there are various systems that led them to this moment, failing that led them to this moment. Um, and also getting involved in like community fridges and that type of work um, is also very, very important. Um, you know, a lot of times there's food, you know, I'm guilty of this where there's food that's almost expired that I would throw away when actually, you know, the, the best thing to do is to find a local fridge to give it to you. And then finally, I would say um, supporting your local domestic violence shelter because so often the resources that they provide are so essential and they're just so inaccessible to so many if they don't have the resources or funds. Um, my mom has actually started, uh, if she, when, when my grandmother passed away recently and when we were going through her closet of clothes, we made um, the donation to the local domestic violence shelter um, in honor of the work that I was doing on MAID. Um, to, you know, which, which ties into the boutique scene that you see where Alex goes and gets um, clothes that make her feel empowered and good about herself. Um, in episode nine, that was right out of the domestic violence shelter that we toured. And um, they desperately, desperately need any and all support. Well, Erica Wax, thank you so much, uh, both to you and um, your colleagues, to everyone involved on uh, with made for the gift of this extraordinary show um, and thank you for the gift of your spirit and for your time it's so good to uh, learn from you to hear from you and to for me personally to reconnect with you uh in in this uh, in this wonderful way um great to great to see you thriving thank you thank you so much for having me this has been such a pleasure Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, until next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care, everyone.